delighted to be back. Thank you for praying, any of you that have been praying for me. Um, the surgery uh, was not fun, <laughs> but it was necessary, and um, I'm glad I did it, and hopefully, I w- hopefully this will be the only one I need. But uh, I am just uh, so blessed to be back in the pulpit doing uh, what I love to do, which is to preach the Word of God. So uh, with that, let's, um, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, beginning in verse 7, okay? I'm going to go down to verse 10 today. This is what the Word of God says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and uh, we look to you now for help. I ask that you would be with me, with my mouth, speak through me and to your people. Father, we, we can all identify, Lord, with uh, physical ailment, whether we're in a season of disability, whether we're in a season of sickness or whether we have been in sickness and, and, and ailment for, for years, Lord, we know and we understand what it means to live in this life and be racked with physical pain and physical disability. And I know that this word will be so applicable to your church today. I pray you strengthen every heart. I pray that you would encourage every person. I pray that you would be the lifter of our head today, God, that you would set the wind beneath our sails and that you would encourage us to greater and greater spiritual vitality, more than physical vitality and physical healing. Lord, we need spiritual renewal. We need our hearts to be constantly renewed uh, by your Spirit. And so, Father, we ask, please, fill us with the Spirit of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I sort of, in my prayer, already kind of shown my cards as to the theological controversy surrounding the context of this passage, which is known as the infamous thorn in the flesh for the Apostle Paul and what precisely that was. Well, I am going to argue that it is in reference to uh, Paul's physical body, uh, not his his, uh, fallen sinful nature or unredeemed humanness, but actually his physical body is what I think he is referring to. But in this passage, we are looking at the grace of Jesus Christ, and maybe more accurately, the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin by just stating that fact, that that is a fact of the Christian life. It is not up for debate. It's not up for inquiry. It's not up for investigation in the sense that we need to doubt it or be speculative about it. 
the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of your life. I don't know if there could be anything more encouraging than that. That really the only thing that you need in this life is the very thing that God gives you with all sufficiency. Everything else in this life, as you know, brothers and sisters, runs out. Everything else in this life really is auxiliary, is additive. You don't need a lot of the things that you have in your, in your life. You don't need that smartphone. You don't need that tablet. You don't need that new gadget. You don't need the type of car that you're driving, the type of house that you're living in. There are, our, our closets are filled with things that we just don't need. But if there's one thing that we need, brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God. It is indispensable. It is, it is uh, invaluable. It is, it is incalculable, the grace of God, not just to save us, but also to sanctify us. Not just to redeem us, but also to transform us for a whole life lived. It is only by the grace of God that your Christian life looks any different than anybody else's. It is only by the grace of God that you are where you are today. And it's the grace of Jesus Christ that sustains. And here, just one little glimpse of one person that was sustained by the power of Christ's grace. Paul is our paradigm, our litmus test for to see the grace of Christ in action. And so I want to point out several things here. Number one, several things that we can identify with Paul. Number one, Paul's need of grace. Paul was in desperate need of grace. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord. I could say, I begged the Lord. I beseeched the Lord three times that it might leave. And so right there, you see on two levels, two reasons why Paul needs the grace of God. Number one, for humility. And number two, because it was harmful to him, this thorn in the flesh and so he was in desperate need. Now, I want you to see the consequence of the revelations. It was, as Paul says here, because. That gives us the basis, the rationale, the logic from which this thorn arrives. It was in light of the revelations that God had given Paul that this thorn was given to him. There's another reason why I don't agree with some of the exegetes that would say, well, this thorn... Uh, is probably in reference to a, a false teacher or a divisive brother in the church of Corinth that was just continually a thorn in his side. And you kind of see the usage of that idea in the Old Testament with the concept of the word thorn. But because of the consequence of these revelations, I do think it was in connection to his physical body, that some sort of malady came upon the Apostle Paul in light of, as a result of, the greatness, that's not good enough, the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Listen, the Apostle Paul was given a glimpse of heaven. You remember, if you just go back to the immediate context, he talks about this very thing. 
He says in verse 1, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, this is one person that you can absolutely trust when they say they have had a revelation of the Lord. Remember last time we looked at this, so many claims, so many people, so often make are, are just too quick to claim to have some heavenly vision. They saw some great light. They were lying in the hospital. They had a near-death experience. They traveled to heaven or they traveled to hell. And God just allows all kinds of people to travel to heaven and hell and come back and write a book about it. Well, I don't know about any of that, but I do know this, that the Apostle Paul, based on the authority of the Word of God, did have a VIP entrance into heaven. He was given a superlative vision of heaven and saw such inexpressible, indescribable things. Things that he says are not even legal to talk about. They're not lawful. They're not permitted. It's not even right. It's not even fitting. I shouldn't even use words to try to describe the revelations that God gave me. And uh, in light of that great claim, that's a great claim, isn't it? Isn't that a massive claim? Imagine you with the authority of an apostle, with the authority of the Word of God, being able to go around and say that you have had a trip to paradise, that Christ led you into paradise, and He showed you inexpressible things so glorious that you are not even allowed to talk about them. Well, if you are as sinful as Paul, if you have a sinful nature like Paul, you too may be tempted towards pride. You too may be tempted to push your spiritual uh, experience around on other people and to wield it for your own selfish purposes. People do it all the time on television. And talk about this great experience that they had or that great experience or this conversation that they had with an angel that appeared to them or whatever and What's even more baffling than that is the fact that people actually believe them and are, don't hesitate to whip out their credit cards to prove it. But Paul, as an apostle, did have this experience. And as a result of that, Paul is given this thorn in the flesh. Amazing. Now, he also equates the thorn, if you look at the text here, he equates the thorn here with another, another modifier, the, a messenger of Satan, which is just amazing that he uses this language. These appositional phrases here, meaning they, they, they refer to the same reality, thorn in the flesh, messenger of Satan, they, they, they have sort of a dual effect as we're going to see, a double purpose if you would. At the same time, it was given to him in order to torment or to buffet Paul, but at the same time, it was also given to him in order to protect him, in order to protect him from self-elevation and pride. This thorn was persistent. It was ongoing. The text seems to indicate that it was constant and it was interspersed. In other words, it was something in Paul's body, I believe, that was causing him such angst that periodically it reached a boiling point where all he could do is cry out to God to remove it from him. It became unbearable. He uses the word torment. 
I mean, that's pretty graphic language. It was like torture. The word torment literally means uh, to be plummeted, to, uh, uh, to be pummeled, excuse me, to be beaten, to be slapped. Uh, that's the way that Paul describes this affliction. And concerning this, he says, he implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Now, if we stop reading the text right there, we might be tempted to think, boy, God is cruel. Here's a good man, right? An apostle. Well, you know theology too well to know there's no one good, but go, go with me a little bit. Here's a good apostle. This is the apostle Paul. I mean, doesn't he have access to God? Doesn't, doesn't God hear his prayers? So if we were to stop reading the text right here, we might be tempted to think things about the character of God that are untrue. Lord, He has begged you on three occasions that you would take this away, that it may leave me, literally that it may run away from me. He wanted it, he wanted it gone so bad. Can you identify with that? Has there ever been things in your life that you just pray to God, please remove this, please remove this from me, this physical ailment, please remove this stumbling block in my life, please remove this circumstance, and seemingly you get from God an answer that doesn't make any sense to you at all, how he just allows it to persist, how he just allows it to go on. And so now let me give you seven characteristics about this thorn, okay? Just to kind of reemphasize that I do think it was some sort of physical malady. But in the text, according to Murray Harris, and I'm borrowing his commentary here for a minute, he gives seven what I thought were helpful observations about this thorn in the flesh. Number one, the thorn was a consequence to his revelations. Difficult for me to to see how, after a revelation, God says, I'm going to assign you a false teacher. Uh, but this is the position of some commentaries, like MacArthur Chrysostom historically has taught the false teacher position. Uh, secondly, it caused him pain, and it prompted him to, re to, to request its removal. Thirdly, it was both a gift of God and a messenger of Satan. Fourthly, it was, per it was permanent. It was a permanent condition that persisted despite the request to remove it. And fifth, it was given to humble Paul, to humble him. And sixth, it was compared to physical pummeling. Seventh, it produced weakness in Paul that led him to have to boast in God's strength and God's grace alone. So it makes a little bit more sense to me as I think of all of these factors to see that this is probably referring to some sort of physical affliction in his body instead of some external influence like a person that, you know, just nagging and not going away. That's, that's my view. Uh, the fact that this happened as a result of these revel revelations, I think, precludes the idea that God had assigned him some divisive brother to follow him around. The physical malady, whatever it might have been, uh, is, is used by Satan apparently to twist and to turn what God intended to humble Paul in order to, 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 to um, pester Paul, to harass him. And this same demonic influence is used by God as a safeguard to keep Paul from self 
elevation and pride and arrogance. It is really, ironically, a grace of God. Anytime God does something in your life or brings something into your life to keep you humble, it is actually His grace. It is not a punishment. It is not necessarily Him chastising you, but it's more than anything Him being gracious to you that He would alert you to your pride, and that He would protect you from pride. That truly is a gracious gift. And as we wonder or consider why God in His sovereignty decided not to make it specific, what is this thorn? What is it? I know in your mind you're probably thinking and you're making connections, uh, but He doesn't specify here, and I think that too is helpful. Because had he limited it to his own personal experience, it might exclude all of us from applying it to ourselves. But the fact that it is general, I think, means that the ambiguity is on purpose. It is supposed to be undefined so that in the sovereign providence of God, the people of God for thousands of years now would be able to receive encouragement from this, would be able to identify with Paul. But if Paul would have just said, This is referring to depression. Well, some of you don't get depressed like that, and it's not a big deal, so you might just kind of write it off. But the fact that we can identify in a general way means that you and I can apply this to our lives. Now, we can see God's grace at work in Paul's life in what many have regarded. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, what many have regarded to be a parallel passage identifying the thorn in the flesh referring to some physical malady with Paul's eyes. That's a very possible, very plausible uh, argument. Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 to uh, 14. And if this is is really referring to, to, to the thorn in the flesh, this physical problem that Paul might have had with his eyes, then maybe it came to him immediately after Acts chapter 9 when God had blinded him on, on, uh, as he was, you know, as he revealed himself to him. Um, but in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you at first. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Very interesting. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying he had some sort of condition where, for Paul, it was almost a despisable condition. It was almost some sort of problem that, he, that, that, that people could perceive that made him almost unattractive, almost hard to look at, almost hard to be around. And yet, as he says, you did not despise me, you did not loathe me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, another encouraging factor for you and I is God's sovereign and benevolent design for our weaknesses. Though it may seem mysterious to us why God would have to use certain afflictions, which we may go through over and over, He has a good purpose in it. God's promise to us is that even in this, He intends our good. He intends to bring good out of it. Namely, by the demonstration of His grace. There's a place for pleading with God, brothers and sisters. There's a place for us to plead with God for His mercy because of some affliction. But there's another place for us to resign ourselves and to yield to the sovereignty 
of God as well. Paul doesn't just have a deep need of grace, but Paul also gets a supply of grace. Look at verse 9. He says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So, after pleading with the Lord and after begging Him and imploring the Lord to remove the thorn, what is the divine response coming back to Him? The same response that you and I have probably heard, but just we don't hear it with words or we don't hear it audibly, but we know that this is the, res- the, the response for us because it doesn't leave. And that is that Christ would rather grant him his grace than to remove from him his pain. And so Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. Just amazing to me. Just as Paul's revelations were abundantly supplied to him, the grace of God also was supplied to him sufficiently and abundantly even. The grace that is given in connection to Paul's request to end the pain of his persistent thorn is the grace that will sustain him for the rest of his life. And that is what the grace of God does for us. It causes us to be able to cope. Don't go to pills to cope. I'm not taking you to take, the doctor tells you to take pills, great. But so many people today in our society, I don't know if you've noticed lately, I don't remember it ever being this bad, but people are on pills for everything. They're a little bit hyper, take a pill. You got a little sniffle, take a pill. You got a little pain in your back, take a pill. You get depressed easy, take a pill. You get angry, take a pill. Listen, I can, I can, we can eliminate half of those symptoms by this one principle alone, repent. Repent. A depression can very easily become the sin of pride. That's the way that Satan works. That's the way he twists our maladies to his sinful and sinister ends. He takes something like Paul's thorn in the flesh, and by the time he's done with it, it's like an angel, a demonic angel, the demon coming to buffet you, to torment you, to harass you, and to afflict you. God's grace was there to sustain him through his experience of pain. Paul's supply of grace is rooted in four components that I want to share with you. Four components of the grace of God. Its source, its sufficiency, its strength, and its supremacy. That's a sermon all by itself. You know that. But let's try to speed through this. Number one, the source of the grace that is given. This source Jesus takes absolute ownership of the grace that is given. He refers to it as my grace. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace that he merited for him on the cross, that he earned and won for him on the cross when he laid down his life for him, when he purchased all of his redemption, all of his redemption, all of your redemption, all of our redemption. It is the grace of Jesus just as much as it is the grace of the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity. It is the grace of the Father, and it is the grace of the Spirit of grace. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Now, in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament emphasize very frequently the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's just amazing to me. The grace of Jesus Christ. What a proof of His deity, right? 
If Jesus is not divine, what good is the grace of Jesus if he's not divine? But since the New Testament stresses the lordship of Jesus Christ as much as the Old Testament stresses the lordship of Yahweh, then Jesus' grace is divine grace. It is supernatural grace. It is the grace of God in Christ. That's what it is. The simple observation should also be made. Now listen to this, because here I, I want to help us a little bit maybe, because I've often interacted in conversations where this, this topic has come up. We should not miss this simple but powerful fact that the Apostle Paul did not hesitate to pray to Jesus Christ. Though Jesus had instructed his disciples that the normative pattern of prayer is prayer to the Father in the name of Jesus, he still receives the prayers of his people. It is right and fitting and proper for you to pray to Jesus Christ. So I want to just comfort you with that because some people are like, am I praying wrong? Because I've had so many people ask me this over the years. Is it okay to pray to Jesus? Yes. It's not okay to pray to anybody less than God. But because Jesus is God, you can pray to Jesus. In the Bible, the Bible knows nothing of praying to saints. It knows nothing of praying to other believers it knows nothing of praying to Mary. It knows nothing of praying uh, to a priest or, or, or a prophet or an apostle. Nothing of the sort. Because of the work of Jesus, you are a priest unto your God. And you have direct access to God and to his presence and to his throne of grace so that you can come directly to God yourself. What a marvelous, that's a grace in it of itself. Also, the sufficiency of grace, not just the source of grace, but its sufficiency. Paul says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. There's the deep need, and there is the abundant provision right there. Do you have a need right now? Think in your life, what is your need? What, what are you needy of? I tell you, God has as much grace as you need for whatever is ailing you. That doesn't mean automatic physical healing. This is where the Word of Faith people have gotten it all wrong. Think that you can actually claim the promises of God in that way. No, but the Bible teaches that everything is under the sovereignty of God. Everything is under finally and ultimately the divine will and decree of God. That's why we pray according to your will. And if it is according to his will, we have it, and he will do it for us, and we need not question it, that we will have what he promised if we pray according to his will. His grace is sufficient. It is sufficient even if he doesn't remove whatever is paining you. I love that, because more than your physical healing, brothers and sisters, more than that is your need for the sufficiency of his grace. That means that you have to first esteem His grace, know His grace, love His grace. You need to have a relish, a savor, and a sense for the grace of God. If you have no perception of the grace of God, if you have no ability to esteem the grace of God, then you will have no way to enjoy the grace of God in your life. But you need to know this, that the sufficiency of His grace means that if the pain, emotional, psychological, 
physical, whatever, if it does not leave, grace is enough. It means that grace is enough for you as a child of God. If the problems in your marriage never are overcome, grace is enough. If your children just simply remain incorrigible and after tears and years, grace is enough. No matter what kind of tribulation you may find yourself in, brothers and sisters, the good news for you today is that the grace of God is enough for you. It is enough for you to sustain you, to strengthen you. And what it does is that it gives you a high view of God. It shows you that God is actually involved in your life. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the grace of God is working in your life right now? Or can you only see the trial? Can you only feel the pain? The grace of God should be that substitute for our pain that we need. It is the grace of God that we bank on in terms of our ability to cope with our trials. And this moves me to the next thing, which is the strength of grace. Not just the source and the sufficiency of grace, but also the strength, the power of His grace. Look at the the text again. He says, My grace sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Don't we want power? Don't we want ability? I do. If I have a sickness, if I have an ailment, if I have a persistent thing that just nags away, I need ability to get over it. And according to the word, power is perfected in weakness. But this is just very interesting here. Because he goes from one man's specific experience, Paul, and then he injects a principle here that I believe is a universal principle that he injects into the text. Namely, power is perfected in weakness. He doesn't qualify that. Your power, Paul. The power that Paul needed. The power for one person. No, this is a nomic reality. Timeless universal. And this principle, I might add, is not something that Jesus Christ observed in the universe. There is a principle out there that states that power is perfected in weakness, and that principle I will apply in your life. No, it is a divine principle. The principle comes from God Himself. He has ordained it this way, which is wonderful. The fact that power is perfected in weakness is the result of God's good pleasure, and the provision of His all-sufficient grace. Just as the law is the power of sin, the strength of grace is the source of grace. It is the source of grace, but it is the grace of Jesus Christ. It is sufficiently powerful. It is mighty grace. Look at that word he uses there, perfected. Paul's choice of the word perfected means grace is brought to an end. It means grace is has a design. It is intended to accomplish a certain purpose. It has a special task. It has a certain purpose. And through weakness, that power, that grace is perfect. The design is complete, especially when you experience it and harness it in your own life. Its strength is designed to overcome our weakness, overcome our weakness. And so, A real tangible example. Show me who does this. Show me where this happens. Well, I would say it happens every day in your life. 
because you are racked with weakness. <laughs> you have more weakness on you than you even know. And if it wasn't for the sufficiency of God's grace, your weakness would overcome you all the time. You know how many times I've sat in an office counseling with somebody whose weaknesses have just become too much and they are ready to end it through suicide or more accurately, self-murder. Your weaknesses will drive you to murder. Your weaknesses will drive you to despair. And were not the grace of God keeping you First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, were it not the one who started a good work in you and then is promised to complete that good work in you, you would make shipwreck of your faith in an instant. I've often had people tell me, I think it's possible to lose your salvation. The, the response that a Calvinist would say is, then you are surely damned. It's not possible that you'll lose your salvation I will bet my whole inheritance, which is not a lot, I will bet my whole life savings, which is even less, I will bet everything I have in my pocket right now that you will make shipwreck of your faith. If it's left to you, you're toast. But it's only the grace of God that keeps you, that perfects you. This is the grace of God at work. How about a more practical or particular example? I think of two wheelchair people in my life, that I, or the people that I know of in, that I can think of, one of them is a friend, personal friend, Joni and Justin. Joni Erickson Tata and Justin Peters. Both of them consigned pretty much the majority of their life to wheel, wheelchair life. Joni Erickson Tata, even worse, totally quadriplegic, cannot walk, cannot move. But boy, the grace of God flows through that woman. So much so that John MacArthur even had her speak in public from the stage, give her testimony in front of men. Uh, that's as far as I'll go with that. But um, Justin Peters is a personal friend of mine, and I can tell you what, it's amazing the grace of God in his life. I recently stayed at my house, and I saw him get ready in the morning. It took him an hour to get ready, to get into his crutches to get into the wheelchair an hour every day. And do you not think that Justin has probably spent you know, night after night imploring the Lord to take it away? And you better believe that what he's hearing coming back from Jesus Christ is, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't even know if he shares my exegetical view of this passage. It doesn't matter. I'm right. He's wrong. <laughs> but what matters is that we see the grace of God holding him up. Those crutches aren't holding him up. It's the grace of God holding him up. You know that his, his, uh, his condition could have been ten times worse. That, too, is a grace of God. But we can go on and on and on. But something happens in the sufficiency of Christ's grace where for Paul, he overcomes his weaknesses. God, in the grace that he gives us, listen closely now, he grants us a Christ-centered perspective that we did not previously have. For example, first, we might be, we might be tempted to think that, that the, the thorn that Paul had was debilitating to his progress. Paul has places to go, things to do, people to see, sermons to preach, letters to write, 
And doesn't God know that this is holding him back? This is debilitating. It's a hindrance. But for Paul, grace revealed that that hindrance was actually the enablement of worship because of where he's going. Notice that Paul's progression of thought goes like this. Concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Where at that point, he only sees pain, he only sees irritation, he only sees a burden. To then, the comparative clause is this. I will rather boast about my weakness. He goes from begging to boasting because of the grace of God. His worry gives way to worship. That's one way that God imparts to you a Christ-centered perspective of your trials that help you to overcome your weakness. Number two, what we might perceive to be Satan's mercenary to inflict harm on us, a messenger of Satan to torment us, grace reveals as an opportunity to have greater communion with Christ. How easily can physical malady lead us to sin, anxiety, fear, depression, doubt, despair? Satan uses our weaknesses for his own sinister ends. Satan's purpose in our weakness is to cause doubt. Listen, you say, what, what is Satan doing in the world? This is, this is his only ambition, maybe not only. His greatest ambition is to destroy the glory of God. How? By devouring your faith. That's how. Jesus had to pray for Peter because Satan had asked Jesus, just wrap your mind around that for a second, Satan himself had asked Jesus himself to devour Peter's faith. And Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith would remain. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. This is what Satan wants. This is how he can take a simple thorn-like affliction in your body somewhere and twist it to torment you spiritually. Paul uses this word to torment. Um, it's interesting that this word is used only a couple of other times, and a couple of times it's used, it's in Mark 14, 65, Matthew 26, 67, to refer to the beating that Jesus received in his passion. Every believer is appointed a time of passion in this life. Our path to glory is a path of passion, suffering. Suffering is ordained for every believer without question. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Suffering is what we have been destined for. That's incredible. You can't write a book like Your Best Life Now based on 1 Peter 2.21. We are promised suffering. We, we, we are told over and over, don't be surprised. Don't let it take you off guard. Why would you be surprised when you get the phone call, when you get the diagnosis, when the finances just aren't reaching, when the trouble at work comes, when the children are just going haywire? You don't even know why. You thought you did everything right. You followed, you know, the latest manual or whatever. You, you follow the, 
the best principles and all of a sudden they turn 18 and tell you they don't want to walk with God. They don't want to walk with God. James chapter 1 says don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Peter says it's, don't act as if something strange has happened to you. John chapter 16 verse 33, Jesus said, in this life, you know the verse, you will have tribulation. That is a Bible promise that comes true for every one of us. But thank God for the supremacy of His grace, which is where I'm going next. The supremacy of grace is understood through its capacity to move us deeper into fellowship with Christ. As Paul told the Philippians, he wanted one thing, and that was to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. That is, to be like Christ when I suffer. That's what he's saying. To understand more of the benefits and the sufferings of Christ. To know more Christ-likeness means you need to be ready to suffer like Christ. To have a perspective of suffering like Christ had. The sufficiency of grace is designed not only to lead us to victory, but to lead us to Christ. More of Him. And if it does not lead us to more of Him, I promise you, because your spiritual life is not in cruise control, you don't have it in neutral. You're driving somewhere. But if you're not driven more to Christ, you will be driven away from Christ. In your trial, in your affliction, in your sick bed. If this is not sitting next to you on your sick bed, Satan is more than happy to keep you company. And if you don't preach to yourself, like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Satan will be preaching to you all day long. And so, this is another aspect of the sufficiency of His grace. Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in in me. Having the power of Christ dwelling in us implies the presence of Christ. You remember Philippians, and turn there with me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, but you remember that circumstance there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 13. There is a real need. There is a real circumstance. Paul is in need. He is He's relying on the church of Philippi to supply his missionary needs. And in verse 10, he praises them because finally they have awoken to his needs and they are ready to supply the need. And in verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want. That's not the ultimate goal of the relief, is the relief itself. He says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along in humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, crucial text. This is the crux interpretum of the whole context. I can... That sounds like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I am strong, because the Greek word there is able, dunamai. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the, that's the power of Christ brought to you by the presence of Christ in your life. Your sufferings are the occasion for a deeper communion with God. 
Now let's see the result. Verse 10. Verse 10. Therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, but I want strength in the Christian life. I want to be strong, fortified. I don't want to be flimsy. I don't want to be pushed over real easily by my trials. I don't want to be a, you know, I don't want to be a weakling in the war. I want fortification, solitude in the Christian life. And this, I believe, holds the key. This passage, the result of Christ's sufficient grace is a life lived in tension, brothers and sisters. This is what we could call the paradox of grace. The paradox of grace. That even though God had sovereignly given to Paul this thorn, and where he says there in verse 7, a thorn was given to me, I take that to be a divine passive, grammatically speaking. That means God is the one who granted it. It didn't come out of accident. It didn't come outside of God's notice. It didn't come from Satan, primarily. Every affliction that comes into your life first has to be ordained by the sovereign will of God because everything is ordained by the sovereign will of God. And that might be hard, you know, come up and ask me later. But um, this is a divine passive in this text, meaning God gave him this thorn in order to humble him. And God, and, and as often the case, Satan takes the gifts of God and he tries to pervert them. He tries to twist them. He tries to mess with them so that in the end, it may appear, it may appear that the thorn is actually a messenger of Satan, but it is not. It is an instrument of God's grace in order to reveal to us more grace and more of Christ. And so the weakness Paul's referring to in this text refers to specific and general things, but for the general things, he, he, he looks at what God gave him and he realizes all of these things I can cope with in the grace of God, all of these issues. So, he returns for a moment. You remember chapter 11, Paul gives a whole list of his sufferings, right? So he returns to give us another list, but this time he does it in a way that this is applicable for you and I, even if we don't necessarily have each individual problem that he's talking about here, where he says that he's content with weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. Difficulties is an interesting word because it's a general term that just sort of is a covering. It's sort of a catch-all. It's a spill. It's a spilled. It's a drip pan to catch whatever else you may not be able to put in the categories previously mentioned. Difficulties is the Greek word that means that, that, that means distress, that which causes trouble. And as a matter of fact. The only other two places where it appears in the whole New Testament is in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 8, verse 35. And there, Paul is using the term in association with another term, trials. Trials. Can we identify with trials? You bet. Do we have difficulties? You bet. Do we have the grace of God at our disposal like Paul did? You bet. Because you are in Christ, 
and because His grace is sufficient, and because He is the source of grace, and because you can go to Him for grace, and you have the same access to the grace of God. Paul himself tells us Paul can live in this tension for at least two other reasons, and then I'm done. But don't check out, okay? They tell preachers, don't tell them when you're done, because then they check out. Don't check out. My last two reasons why Paul can live in this tension in his life where he is afflicted, he is weak, but he is strong. And it's seen here. Number one, Paul saw that his trials were not in vain, but in fact were capable of being for the glory of God. That little small prepositional phrase where he says, I am well content with these things for Christ's sake. I love that. That means on Jesus' behalf. Every time the biblical authors use the phrase, huper Christos, or something like that, on behalf, almost fell back, sorry, on behalf of Christ, it means for his sake, for his name, for his praise, for his glory, ultimately. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And this is why Paul can live his life with this radical worldview. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I will be put to shame, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, same principle right here, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Love it. I love it. Like Job before him, Paul was called, and we are called, to glorify God through our suffering, not apart from our suffering. And the more that we think we need to cease suffering so that we can start glorifying, we have it all wrong. We have it all wrong. God, for some reason, well, because it magnifies the glory of His grace, loves to be glorified in weakness. Don't despise your weaknesses. Don't despise them. Take advantage of them. Use them for the glory of God. Get creative with your disabilities for the glory of God. Because power is perfected in weakness. I have so much more to say about this. Paul, Paul gives us a second principle here for living our lives under the tension of trials, specifically his personal empowerment. I love this declaration. You don't get a lot of declarations like this in Scripture. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what people like to focus on? I am strong. Our humanistic society only likes to look at that part. You have everything within you. Oh, it is the celebration, the exaltation. It is the idolatry of the human spirit. You have everything you need residing in you. You have the strength. You have the power. You have the ability. You're good enough. You know, you're, people like you. You're good looking. You know, that whole thing. It's humanist garbage is what it is. The only thing residing in you is weakness. I love what Paul tells Jacob. He says, Jacob, you worm. 
I will help you. <laughs> Jacob always trying to find a way out, right? Find a different way, just manipulate the situation to get what he wants. And it took for God to call him a worm to get him to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. But we need not hear God call us a worm. Let's just take him at his word and say, God, your word says that in the context of my weakness, I can be strong if I harness the grace of God in my life, if I understand the tension that I'm living in, if I understand the paradox of your grace, then I can glorify you, powerfully magnify you in my weakness. And in that magnifying act, you are strong. You are powerful, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. David Garland said, Paul received more than grace to bear the vexing of affliction. He receives the power of Christ. That's beautiful. Turn with me in closing to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. We're going to go here, and this is talking a little bit of a different context. This is talking about eschatology, looking forward to the future realization of the glory of God. But the analogy is the same. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. For indeed, he who was crucified, he was crucified, Jesus, because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also, there's the analogy, there's the connection. That's what you have to hold on to right there. Grab on to that. We also, that's for you. He says, we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. That's the only reason why you're going to make it. And that's why we should sing when we sing and when we sing of Christ alone and being in Christ, our hands should be up high because there's no other reason that you're going to make it except for the fact that you are in Christ. You are hidden in Him. You are clothed in His righteousness. And the reason why God will resurrect you on the last day is because your life is hidden with Him. And because He lives you will live in this way. We can say that when we are weak, then we are strong. <clears throat> Father, Lord, what we need ultimately is just simply a greater understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. Lord, help us to see how magnanimous our Christian life really is. To be in Christ is to be in the safest, most secure place in the universe. We cannot be more safe. We can't be more safe in our safe little house, in our safe little car, in our safe little insurance policies. We are more, we are 10,000 times, 1 million times more safe in Christ in the jungles of Africa, in Christ in the deserts of Afghanistan, in Christ in the peril of our own trials, in the tribulation in the distress of our own difficulties. And God, help us to see the wonder of that and help us, Lord, to reach, like Paul, to reach for Him, to lay hold of Him, His suffering, so that we might know more the power of His resurrection in our own lives. We praise You, God. Father, we thank You in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen.